Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the J3 University Podcast. With me, as always, is co-host Luke Miller. And today, we also have a special guest, Jackson Pios, PhD, current student, uh, in clinical and sport nutrition, and also the nutrition science advisor for bulk nutrients. And um, I, I have to say, well known for his Simpson IG posts and, and, <laughs> and, and a cameo to a research that goes along with it. That's how I first saw you was the Simpsons <laughs> IG yeah, posts. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> how are you doing today, Jackson? Thanks for having coming on. I'm doing very well, man. And I'm very, very grateful um, to, to be on the pod. Um, I've, I've followed you for, for a lot longer than, than you followed me. So um, very, very cool chat. You, you beat me to it. How to take that dig, huh, man? <laughs> <laughs> so were you, were you like a Simpsons kid growing up? Like, how, how old are you, Jackson? I turned 27 this week. Last week, sorry. Oh, so you're a bit younger than me. <laughs> Simpsons <laughs> was like my show. Like as a kid, that's what we'd watch. And looking back on it now, I was like, man, I, I'm surprised I was allowed to watch this. But yeah, I, just, yeah, yeah. I saw these IG posts. I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah. linking nutrition nah. studies to Simpsons. I'm, I'm a massive cartoonist fan um, in general. Simpsons was a big one for me um, and also anime. So Japanese cartoons, uh, they probably framed most of, of my childhood and upbringing. <laughs> no, very cool. So have a variety of cartoons you watch and you have a variety of like sports and stuff that you do as well too. So you've gotten into, into bodybuilding, also see you do like a lot of boxing too, or is it a combination of MMA or? Yeah, so I've, I've done a bit. So like majority of my childhood sports was focused around Australian rules football. Um, my my dad actually played for the AFL, which is our Premier League, which would be equivalent of like your NFL. Um, so he was he was an extremely talented um, footballer. So I played that for most of my life. Um, played up to like a semi professional um, division. I was also a rower. I was actually captain um, of our rowing squad um, when I was eighteen, nineteen. That was that was some serious training. Um, and then after that sort of phase, I started sort of lifting weights to complement performance in those sports and just purely from a performance perspective. And then notice like, Hey, like my, my muscles look a bit different after, after doing this stuff. And I, I like how that looks. Um, and that's what sort of led me down the, the pathway of trying to sort of tweak the training to get a little bit more of a, of a hypertrophic um, response. Um, dipped into bodybuilding for a little bit and, um, uh, found myself sort of missing that like true like competition um, that, that sporting provides. Um, and that's what sort of got me um, into boxing for the last sort of two and a half years um, with a few competitions thrown um, in the mix during that time. Uh, so at the moment, um, still lift weights, still trying to improve the physique, but uh, I do also um, still box regularly and, and still looking to fight sort of every few months. So was nutrition like the secondary to all this? Like, hey, I do these things. This is what I love to do. How do I get better at it? And then you dive into nutrition to, and then you just all of a sudden are now doing a PhD in it. Basically, man. So like funny story about me. So I was quite talented at school. Um, and sort of when you finish your, your final year at school and you're just deciding sort of what university degrees you want to dive into, I actually began in veterinary science, um, studying to be a vet. Um, for no other reason that number one, I, I liked animals and 
Uh, two, which is probably the predominant reason, was it was the hardest degree to get into in the, in the state. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to aim for the, the hardest one. <laughs> um, so I'll, for six months, I was studying to be a vet. Um, but the, the, the true passion was sports at that time. Um, so I made the plunge and moved into like the exercise science, sports science realm um, at another university. Um, and that was just like a massive relief of like sensation of, okay, I'm, I'm where I need to be here. Um, learning a lot about how to optimize athletic development, how to make people bigger, faster, stronger. Um, and then sort of came to the realization that sort of you've got two categories of, of tools basically at your disposal. One is the training, one is new nutrition. And I just found nutrition to be far more exciting um, because especially with a lot of like the sports athletes, um, a lot of them, they're all training hard, you know, they're, they're all pushing themselves pretty damn hard if they're, if they're a decent athlete. Um, but what they're not all doing is, is sort of optimizing their nutrition. And I just found that um, nutrition as, as a standalone tool was so powerful and able to get like immediate performance responses like within a matter of like weeks and you're just not going to see that with like manipulations in training so I, I found I was really excited about nutrition just because sort of the manipulation was able to provide such a significant and immediate sort of response or benefit or change in performance markers and subjective markers so that's what sort of basically streamlined me into nutrition specifically and that's what sort of framed most of my sort of postgraduate studies and, and landing me into a, a PhD in clinical and sports nutrition. That's, that's really cool. And, you know, I coming up through, through competing and doing lots of different sports, I always saw nutrition as like what pe a lot of guys were leaving on the table. Like you said, they, they go in the gym and train hard. And it's like, man, I, I'm so competitive. Like I want to be the best. Where else can I like, what other variables can I use? And nutrition was one of those things. And also one of those things that was really misunderstood. And I was really confused on it too. So I'm like, man, I got to learn everything I can on this. And then that just takes you down the rabbit hole of nutrition to learning oh, and learning yeah. more. And I, I love the complication of, of nutrition. And I'd say this almost this past year, like what you really see in social media was a lot on training. Like it was a big year for hypertrophy training. We have all this like volume research coming out. That was last year was all volume talk, right? And yeah, nutrition yeah, yeah. was kind of, the research was kind of boring, honestly. Like I was reading more exercise science papers and now there's been this nutrition revival, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and uh, we're starting to get a little bit more into looking back into refeeds and diet breaks. We've had some conversations with a few other, uh, we had Eric Helms on, Mike Isretel, talking about kind of like what we already know about refeeds, diet breaks, all this intermittent dieting, and Jackson has a lot of insight into what is to come and what we haven't actually been published and some that are just early, early on. So what I really want to dive in now with, with you is talking about where, where the research that you've been investigating and the kind of the stuff that you know that no one else knows yet. Um, you know, we have a lot of this existing research out in the world. So what, what, is, what is your current projects, um, where you're at with refeeds and diet breaks in, in that line of, of literature? Yeah, so the most recent things that I've been involved with, so the bulk of my PhD has been focused on sort of diet breaks specifically. Um, now, diet breaks fit in this category alongside refeeds, um, which we refer to as intermittent dieting. Now, intermittent dieting um, just refers to 
a dietary approach where you're intermittently increasing food or calorie intake somewhere along the weight loss phase. Um, yes, very broad, broad definition, but that, that's what we have because um, as most of you listeners will know, um, we have substantial variation in the duration that the higher feeding periods last for and how frequently they're used. For example, uh, when we're discussing refeeds, Generally, this refers to like a one to three day increase in food or calorie intake. Um, that's usually happening sort of once a week to once a fortnight. Um, whereas when we talk about diet breaks, um, usually these higher feeding periods, um, they last a little bit longer, um, sort of like three days at least, um, even anywhere up to, to 14 days. Um, and obviously with, with that case, um, they're going to be used less frequently. Um, diet breaks might only be used every sort of three to, to eight weeks, um, depending on, on sort of the context. So that's sort of where the definition stands. Now, where does the research lie? Um, to be honest, this is a very, very new area of research. Um, and sometimes that surprises a lot of people because people seem to have this impression that refeeds and diet breaks are this sort of heavily evidence-based strategy um, with a whole bunch of research sort of supporting um, their utility. And that's just really not the case. Um, up until sort of I started my PhD, we had a study on rats. Um, and this is just intermittent dieting in general. Um, we had a study on rats, a, a study on sort of uh, a group of overweight women um, that trialed like a three-day sort of ad libitum diet where they just could sort of eat whatever they want and macros weren't controlled or anything like that. Um, and we had the Matador trial, which basically took a, a whole group of overweight men. Um, they dieted them for two weeks straight and then um, they would have a two-week diet break where they took them somewhere around to, to maintenance calories. Um, so not a whole lot there. Um, and, and certainly um, far from an optimized protocol that, that would be practically applicable to athletes. Um, so a lot of people were stretching um, in terms of the, the, how much we really do know about these things. Um, and another stretch that a lot of people make is, is some of the early re research around leptin, um, where we would quote these studies where um, you take a group of dieted down individuals and basically put them through this caloric overload um, and see this sort of transient increase in leptin circulation. Um, now, leptin is a hormone responsible for um, regulating our energy expenditure and our satiety. So when we have higher circulating levels of leptin in the blood, we have higher satiety and higher energy expenditure. So with that in mind, people then sort of made the leap to say, okay, well, if we sort of have these refeeds where we increase calories um, somewhere along the diet, we're going to see a response from leptin. Leptin levels are going to increase and this is going to increase our energy expenditure, sort of preventing metabolic slowdown, as a lot of people like to say, um, and potentially sort of increasing our society, our satiety to, to make sort of dieting or adherence um, a little bit easier. That was basically what we had, uh, but really like very few actual like randomized controlled trials um, looking at these things. Uh, we did have the Bill Campbell refeed paper published uh, last year, I believe, might be the year before. Um, and they designed uh, a pretty good study, um, which we, we could say is closely attributable to like a bodybuilder style or physique style like refeed approach where they would diet for five weeks, five days straight, and then have a two day um, refeed at the end of the week. And then they compared that to um, 
a group who just dieted completely straight um, for the duration of the weight loss phase. And the refeed came from like completely basically increased carbohydrate intake um, on those final two days. Now, I actually published um, a letter to the editor in response to this paper. Um, and maybe we can drop the link if people want to read that. Um, yeah. But uh, basically, the, the concerns that me and my research team had with the, with the Campbell paper was that the conclusions that they were making in this paper just weren't supported by the actual research, the, the, the data that they had. Um, and so basically, the, the, the Campbell team stated that using the refeeds was going to one better preserve metabolic rate during dieting um, and number two better preserve lean mass and dry lean mass um, during the weight loss phase um, but because thankfully for the research team for for making their raw data available when i analyzed the data um, there was actually no significant differences between the amount of metabolic rate that was lost and the amount of lean mass that was lost so we just can't say that that, that these refeeds are, are holding on to more of our metabolism or, or holding on to more of our lean mass um, but as i said the 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 i go into full depth um, in this letter to the editor with, with our criticisms and if people are further interested um, in this um, feel free to read it but the the main takeaway is that um, I, I just had to write this letter to the editor because I, I felt like people are just going to get damn confused. Like they already have this seed in their mind that refeeds are like this metabolic holy grail and that if you have them, you're just not going to lose any muscle during your diet and things like that. Um, and this paper is just going to, would have just con contributed to that. And I feel like it's just, yeah, the, the industry is just going to be straight up confused with, with what these refeeds actually do and their, and their purpose and utility. Um, so I'm hoping that sort of, um, that paper did most people did become aware of it um, and, and just caused them to maybe pull back the reins on sort of how assertive they were um, with like the true benefits of refeeds, because um, I certainly think that the, 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 the benefits of refeeds um, are far less significant than what, what a lot of people believe. So that's the refeed side of the picture. Now, real, as I real, said, real what, quick, Jackson, before we, we go on about this, um, cause I, cause like you said, like, uh, you know, when, when a paper comes out, like the Campbell paper, everyone's all of a sudden doing the five on, you know, two off or however you want to phrase it, two off yeah. or two five on or, um, and they're like, yeah, refeeds, refeeds are great. And then we have your paper come out and then I see people that publish like refeeds are bullshit. <laughs> you know, you don't even, don't even do them. Like, you know, Jackson proved it's like, you know, the, the, the media comes out, it's like, oh, great, bad. But a lot of times this isn't really what we're trying to show. It's like, we're really operating kind of this gray area and that research is testing just these certain variables, like in the Campbell paper, we had like lean mass and fat, uh, fat mass. And what are those changes? But there's lots of other things that could be occurring with these Absolutely. refeeds. But also Jackson too, um, you know, we have significance in research, right? But then we have what is significant in real world settings. So like mm -hmm. for this top level bodybuilding competitor, would a, a lean mass retention of like ha half a pound, would that be significant to them? Um, and then, you know, you have to, I guess, weigh these things out. Now that's not saying, hey, the Campbell paper is what the Campbell paper is, but this kind of gets into where we need to go research wise to try to have good takeaways applicable to our subjects and population we're trying to apply them to correct yeah i i, I agree completely um basically it comes down to an argument about p-values uh, essentially yeah. um but the the main concern that i that i do have and which why i still stand by my comments um with the campbell critique is that um 
yes, it is a, 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 an issue of p-values, but at the end of the day, the way that the significance testing is set up, that half a pound, while it might look like an average difference between the groups, um, that difference, because of the significance level that it does have, it could just be due to chance. Like that's basically what significance testing is telling us. It's saying, is it likely that this difference that we're seeing is just due, due to random variation or is, is something actually happening? Now, we could say, okay, maybe there is something happening, even if it didn't reach the significance level. But I don't say that just because it, what's actually happening ties in quite nicely to what I'm seeing in my diet break research as well. Um, now, because we have, like, I'm not seeing any benefits with metabolism or lean mass with the refeeds, with the Campbell analysis. I'm not seeing any benefits with um, metabolism or lean mass, even with diet breaks. Um, so that, that leaves me the question, well, like what actual benefits have we seen anywhere in any research that has shown refeeds or diet breaks are actually going to help us retain more metabolism or lean mass? So um, it begs the question, why, why are we still promoting these tools as sort of metabol metabolism enhancers and lean mass um, retainers, essentially? Um, now, that's not to say that I don't think um, refeeds or diet breaks have any utility. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that whatsoever. Um, and we can potentially maybe in the... In, dive into what some of the benefits we actually did see. Um, but I feel like the, the two main things when people are discussing refeeds and diet breaks is like, I'm going to hold on to more of my metabolic metabolic rate when I, when I use these things. And number two, I'm going to stay full and I'm not going to lose as much muscle if I use these things. So um, they're the two main things um, that I am most skeptical about. I just don't think they happen. Yes. Research is very, very early days. Um, and maybe, like these two main studies which have shown like no benefits, maybe we're going to get the next three studies in the intermittent dieting realm that do show benefits. And then, okay, I'll have to sort of start changing um, the way I look at these things and, and, and basically um, where my assumptions are lying right now. But um, currently with the Campbell stuff, with the diet break stuff that I've done, um, which is the only intermittent dieting research that has been done on weight trained athletes anywhere in the world to date, um, neither of those research teams have shown a benefit with metabolism or lean mass. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not confident to say that, that these tools are useful for, for those benefits. No, I think that's very well stated. You know, we, if you see something out in the field and, and people want to get argumentative about it, like, well, what do you mean refeeds aren't, aren't working how they're supposed to? It's like, they fucking love refeeds. Like they love having high cash. Like that's like, the real reason. That's why everyone. We're going like, <laughs> like, to argue to make this diet easier. Damn it. Uh, you know, I think people see a benefit. They're like, well, I'm noticing this thing. And just because you're noticing something there, we want to investigate what, why, why are you noticing mm -hmm. this thing? Is it truly that you have a metabolic change or better lean mass retention, or is it just that there has an, an e a psychological effect that makes your diet appear easier to you? And, and maybe that is the benefit, you know, and that, that could be a very valid reason to keep doing refeeds. Um, or maybe there's, uh, you know, adherence uh, that improves your prep or your diet because you are able to stay on track. And that could be another very valid reason to use these refeeds, but we want to be accurately saying like, what are we getting out of this and what are we not getting out of it? And, and that's what we're, that's what research is for to investigate these things. So we can make these hypotheticals, you know, what ifs, what ifs this, but we just have to go off the literature and try to, to pick out those variables. So. Yeah. I, I love what you said there, John, because um, I, I agree completely. So I've, I've had this because Eric um, Helms is um, 
played a, a role in a lot of my research and, and we've gone into a lot of deep discussions about sort of the findings and the refeeds and diet breaks. Um, and what we sort of discussed was that like when people use refeeds and diet breaks, like you said, John, they, they, the weight loss phase feels overall more enjoyable to them. And like, they don't exactly know why it feels enjoyable. They just look back and like that prep was kind of a little bit easier and I got just as good results um, compared to what, like when I didn't use um, the refeeds and diet breaks. And then we say, okay, well, why are they, why are they enjoying it more? Um, and thankfully now with my diet break research, we have a couple of findings that are potentially sort of trying to, that are going to peel back the curtain a little bit. So what I did see with research, and this has not been discussed anywhere. So this is, this is brand yes. new stuff. <laughs> you got the plug. Spill the beans. <laughs> so um, we had 60 weight trained athletes recruited for our trial. Um, and we had one group which dieted straight for 12 weeks. And we had another group who dieted for three weeks on, and then they had a diet break for one week and they repeated that cycle. Now, what we saw with the diet break group, they had notably lower hunger throughout the weight loss phase compared to the continuously dieting group, even though they were consuming the same amount of calories overall um, the entire weight loss period. So number one, that tells me, okay, maybe people are just enjoying weight loss more with refeeds and diet breaks because they're not just suffering from hunger so much. Like maybe the hunger is a little bit more manageable when they incorporate these things into the weight loss phase. Um, so that's probably, um, one side of it. And then the second side of it um, is the, a lot of the psychological variables that we measured were far more positive um, in the diet break group. And we put this down to a few things like, like tension scores were lower, stress levels were lower um, in the diet break group. Th this was quite clear. Um, and basically we've skipped, we've um, hypothesized a couple of reasons. Um, we knew that some of the, the diet break group, they were having social meals during their diet break group, um, during their diet break week. Um, so perhaps sort of not having to be completely isolated for the weight loss phase and going, being able to go and have a Nando's meal with your partner or, or your friends or something, maybe that's having a positive effect, could be part of it. Um, we, we think that potentially sort of having the diet breaks um, was causing to become like a little bit more reward focused and that was encouraging adherence during their sort of lower days. Um, and so for example, like maybe they were suffering week two of their dieting block and they're like, fuck, I, I, I can't really like, this is, this is, this is hurting a bit, but then I think, okay, I've only got to hang on for seven more days and then I'm going to get a bit of a, a bit of calorie relief and, and carbohydrate relief for a week. Um, and then usually by like day six or day seven, like they're ready to crack on like into their, their next dieting block. So psychologically um, it seems like things um, were a lot, a lot more positive. Um, and uh, also something we did discuss, um, which I don't think has been discussed before, is, is a lot of people like to um, reference the Matador study, which used the two-week diet breaks in the overweight men. They weren't weight trained or anything like that. Um, and that actually showed sort of better weight and fat loss with the group that was doing the diet breaks. But what we do think is because we have the data now that's showing that hunger was so much lower in the, the diet break group, mm what we think is that maybe the group in the Matador study who had the really lower hunger, maybe because their hunger wasn't so bad, they were just able to better stick to their calorie level over time compared to the continuous group who just had to nail it straight for 15 weeks, especially in a group of overweight men, which potentially we, we can raise question marks about how sort of their adherence is in general, because what sort of landed them in this position to begin with, um, perhaps their hunger just got a little bit more difficult to manage 
and that was causing more sort of oopsie moments and, and, and slips off the plan and things like that. And maybe in fact, that was the, the, ex, the, the true reason between sort of why the, the groups were losing uh, differential fat and, and weight loss at trial. So um, I do think there are notable benefits um, for refeeds and diet breaks, but I think that they're most likely coming from like hunger management and, and sort of keeping more psychological, um, a more positive psychological state throughout the weight loss phase, as opposed to sort of the physiological benefits, which a lot of people claim, which are, are sort of related to preserving the metabolic rate and, and preserving lean mass. So, as you kind of go into like further research on this topic, like, and we're trying to take this field into a direction that that is applicable for coaches and and people across the board athletes and stuff um do you see the the future because you're kind of like spearheading a lot of this at the moment the future of this being around a lot of that psychological benefit possibly even more reporting on like adherence levels right because that was another big thing on the campbell study is like they had like a 50 percent dropout rate and as as a coach like if 50 percent of my clientele is not going to follow a protocol like I, I, I'm not, not going to use it unless it's just like the magic trick in the bag, right? And clearly the data didn't show that. So my question would be, and also too, we have a lot of other variables from an energy availability viewpoint playing at play as well. Do you see this research starting to go more towards like the psychological side of it rather than trying to prove this, this metabolic rate thing? Or do you think that it's still going to stay within that realm? Massively, massively. Um, like I think, like no one, like I'm, I'm, I'm a small fish. Like people, people believe currently what I think. Like at the moment, that that refeeds and diet breaks are this sort of metabolic and lean mass physiological holy grail to dieting. I think that's what the general consensus is out there. People aren't in, that in tune with with the research that I'm doing, but this diet break study and all this group of diet break studies, which are going to be published in the next few months. I just got an email saying probably potentially three weeks. We will have like our first study published on this stuff, which is some of the things I just talked about. Um, I think this is, it's going to blow people's brains out to, to say it lightly, like, because I don't think anyone's really questioned the physio, the physiological like utility of these things. Like, like, I know Mike Isotel and, and the RP crew have questioned them a little bit. Um, but outside of that, um, most people have been pretty pro refeeds and pro diet breaks across the board, even like the, the 3DMJ crew and like the Eric Helms and so on and so on. They've, they've all been massive advocates of, um, of diet breaks too. And, and sort of when really reputable groups like that are promoting these things, um, for someone who's just sort of following along uh, for the recreational physique athlete, they, they, they take this as truth, you know? Um, and I think just because of how well-rounded our study is, um, how well-designed it was, like that we're not getting 60-person weight-trained, like dieting studies with optimized macronutrition these, these days. Like they are few and far between. Like this, this study, when people are, are, are going to see this, they're going to be like, oh, fuck, this is a, is a cool study because – Prior to that, we're pulling from like rodent trials and overweight trials and like non-trained like noobs to, to basically frame our hypothesis for, for how we should train and diet high level athletes. And, and obviously there's a massive gap there. Um, so I think this study is going to be really cool because um, number one, the sample size was huge for what we usually get. Um, they're really high, well, high um, well-trained athletes. Some of them were high level competitors, um, which was thankful for, for sort of um, – the reach that I was able to have early on to be able to sort of pull in these really high level recruits. What, what kind of, what kind of athletes were these? Was it a mix of athletes and 
How, how lean were they? How lean did they get get down to in the? Yeah, so it was it was a mixed bag, um, but like so we had like we had bodybuilders, we had boxers, like they all had to be doing weight training three times per week for at least the last 12 months. So that, 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 that was like the minimum requirement. But I also asked some questions about sort of their competition, like 40% of, of, the, of the guys that we had there were competitors. And in a 60 person trial, that, that's huge numbers. Like we're not seeing that in normal sort of um, nutrition science for physique athletes. So we're not seeing that these days. Um, so it was a mixed bag. And I think for the men, they, they were, I think the average body fat was like somewhere around 15%. And then by the end of the study, they were somewhere around 10, 11 um, on, on average uh, after like 12 weeks. Um, so obviously all natural competitors and, and so forth. Um, but yeah, I think, I think when this study does get published, it's going to, it's going to open people's perspectives a lot. Um, and I think all of a sudden people might sort of put some question marks around refeeds and diet breaks a little bit more uh, as opposed to just being sort of tunnel vision. Like these things are great and every every physique athlete or dieter needs to be using at least a refeed or a diet break somewhere in, the, in their protocol. I think, I think that is a consensus for a lot of people. And they're like, you're a shit coach. If you're not you're like prescribing like diet breaks and refeeds for your client or something like that, or that you're like behind the times. And like, I don't think that's the case. I think um, when this study does come out and, and as it's discussed on forums and, and podcasts and, and whatnot, um, refeeds and diet breaks are going to come a hell of a lot more like individualized and prescribed on like a case by case basis, because I absolutely do not think that they should be used um, for everyone. Just to touch on it lightly. Um, I know a number of people really struggle to like refeeds can actually be an adherence detriment. You know mm. what I mean? Like they, they, they have these higher carb days on like a Saturday or a Sunday and like, you give them a little and they want a lot more. Whereas like sometimes they're just better just keeping them in routine and, and on and locked in. Um, and especially it, things can get even trickier if they're manipulating their food sources on their, on their, on their refeed days. Like if they're on 150 grams of carbs on their low days, uh, quite normal for them to, to have the bulk of that from like oatmeal and, and brown rice or, or low palatable foods and, and um, low calorie dense foods. But then all of a sudden, if they've got 350 to play with on a Saturday, they want to start working sushi and low fat ice cream and cereal. And like those really palatable stuff, like they can just send like hunger waves through the, through the system and, and they just want a hell of a lot more. And, and I think that's why a lot of people report like higher hunger on refeeds. It's usually because I've just manipulated their food sources and I've tasted some really nice shit that they haven't had for a couple of weeks or a week and like, fuck, I am hungry because I want so much more of that. And sometimes, sometimes like they get to that point and it triggers a binge. It's like, okay, I'll just get back on my low day the next day. And, and if that is happening, then the refeeds are actually harming more than sort of any benefits that they are providing. Um, and with diet breaks, like obviously like diet breaks aren't fat loss weeks or, or fat loss period. Like fat loss th th shouldn't be happening during those times. Should be, they should be maintenance or diet rest. So you're not actually getting closer to your goal during the diet break period. So that's in essence, extending the duration of the overall weight loss phase. So if you're time restricted, like if you, if you're 10 weeks out and you still got a bunch of fat to lose, um, I don't think you should just be prescribing diet breaks just because you, th you think that they're this metabolic or, or lean mass holy grail. Um, I think that like if you've got a really well-planned prep, and you, you're planning this shit 30, 35 weeks in advance, and you know when you're going to have your prescribed diet breaks along the way, and you can afford to sort of be weight neutral during those periods, then absolutely work them in. Um, 
But for people who are sort of jumping into a prep with, with a couple of months or something like that, I don't think diet breaks for, should be used for those guys because um, worst case scenario, you miss the point because you spent too much time sort of just cruising at, at weight neutral. Yeah, you, you made a lot of great points there. And, and you, there's a few things I want to I pull out and bring out because before I forget a few things, um, did, on, on your study for diet breaks, because a lot of people were looking at like energy availability, reds and all the different aspects that it, it can affect right um were there any things that you might see of like hey these guys that were using the diet breaks they had improved improved sleep versus the other group and that caused some type of fatigue management strategy for them and maybe in turn this could lead to like improved training performance if sleep's improving because i know like you have some clients and they have some extra calories and they might their sleep might improve um or maybe maybe uh, Eric Combs brought up like digestion, like he was on a prep and like his refeed days would allow him to like have bowel movements, which you kind of go back to say, well, man, maybe why don't you just spread your food out and have more carbohydrate every day? You probably had more bowel movements, right? There's a, there's a very valid argument yeah. either way. Same thing yeah. with sleep. Like, oh my God, I can't sleep for shit. And then I have this refeed day and I sleep. Well, maybe if you spread your food out, you would sleep better at on average in general. But um, are there any markers within studies? Cause you can't measure every marker, right? Um, it's, it's challenging. Are there any ones that you'd want to see investigated that kind of branch into what we see as, as a whole with energy, uh, deficiency syndrome? Yeah. So I did measure like in my diet breaks that I did measure sleep qualitatively. Like I didn't have them wearing the headsets to bed or anything like that. Um, but I measured the Epsworth sleepiness scale and the Pittsburgh um, sleep index, which are like well-validated, highly used um, sleep questionnaires. I didn't see any differences um, <coughs> in scores on those indexes, which is basically like their proxies for either sleep quality or like general sleepiness throughout the day. I didn't see any differences there. Um, perhaps follow-up trials, we could. Um, I certainly would like to see some quantitative stuff on sleep because obviously like the qualitative stuff that they're, they're circling boxes, you know what I mean? Like it's not, uh, not exactly the gold standard um, in measuring these, these variables. Um, so I'd like to see some quantitative on sleep stuff on sleep um, for sure. And I'd definitely like to tap in more to the psychological stuff because when I was planning, like, like, Oh, like when I was planning the diet break study, like I was, pro diet breaks for metabolism and lean mass, you know, like that's what I was hope, like in a sense, hoping to see or expecting to see, because you, you hear these things like over, over the years, like, Oh, refeeds are really great for metabolism and, and they're really great for holding onto your lean mass. So like, that's what my study was like framed to do. And then I was like, I'll put some psychological stuff on the side too. Like, cause that would be cool to have. Like that wasn't like, because I, obviously I didn't know which way the findings were going to go. Um, so now like when the findings did come out, it's like, okay, like there's not much happening on the physiological side, even with like blood hormones. So I, I measured a whole host of, of blood hormones, thyroid, um, leptin, ghrelin, IGF, testosterone, like cost us a fortune to measure all these things and nothing's happening there with, with the diet breaks and, and the refeeds, which was massively disappointing to me because I was like expecting all these crazy cool things to be happening and like leptin to be like sky high and thyroid to be sitting higher and, and, and all these things. Um, but not, nothing really happened there. Um, what sort of where things were most happening were like the subjective stuff, like how are you feeling? How hungry are you? All that sort of stuff. So I'd like to definitely like focus more on the psychological things and, and 
maybe go through some like more complex, better validated, like psychological measurements to really sort of tap into like how these diet breaks and refeeds affecting our psychology and what sort of implications of this psychology is it happening? Is it having on sort of like our, um, our adherence, um, maybe even like training motivation and things like that. What sort of effects is that having to flow on? Um, because I did do a follow-up study, um, which was basically the running at the same time. Um, and it was, it's sort of, it was a, a temporal study. So like um, we gave them a week long diet break, but I was re-measuring stuff every day of the diet break to see, because basically we, no one knows like how long diet breaks should last for. Someone sort of just said a week and someone says two weeks. It's like, based on what, like it's the numbers sort of pulled out of of thin air. So I wanted to like measure every day of the diet break to see like, what was the time course? Like how long, how many days does it take to start seeing improvements in some of these like outcome measures that we think might respond positively to positive energy balance. Um, And what I, what I see is again, like the physiology stuff was like a little bit disappointing. Um, but I, I did use a, a validated index called the Delta, which is basically a evaluation of like daily life stress and things like that and, and training stress. Um, and what was really cool to see is like, as the diet break went along, like daily life and training stress just started going down with the diet break. So like, I think that's a cool finding and that's something I'd like to, to tap into a little bit further. And I think that's, um, when people say like, Oh, my prep was so much better when I used refeeds and diet breaks. I think like, because like that stress just came down, they, they feel a lot better and like, okay, like prep ain't so bad compared to someone who maybe didn't have that thing. And like, fuck this, like six weeks out, I hate my life and I don't want to do this again or something like that. Yeah. I think because I've had the same experience, like my preps have felt easier, but a, a lot of that. And, and when I look over like a lot of these preps in, in, in the past, I've gotten better at managing stress, setting my lifestyle up to be in a bodybuilding prep versus like working two jobs and trying to bodybuild on the side and squeeze it all in. Mm-hmm. And I, I think just that, that ease make, makes a, a dramatic difference. And yep. you're able to push someone harder if they're able exactly. to manage their stress more. So you're like, holy shit, I got, I would start using these refeeds, gotten the best shape I've ever been in. It's mm-hmm. like, well, is that why, or is it because you're able to manage stress in some other way and you could able to push yourself harder? Mm-hmm. And I think that is part of what we see a lot. Um, I, I've also had the, the, the argument and just had a toss around in my head too, of like, when you do a show and you basically run a deal a week before your show, you're, you're deep, you're tapering cardio, you're decreasing stress, you're essentially refeeding or almost a diet break. And then your post-show, if you have another show coming up, a second show, all of a sudden it's like fat loss is like kicked back up. Like, man, I'm starving. I'm, I'm hotter and my metabolism's going like, <laughs> okay, whoa, 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 calm down. Um, <laughs> what is truly going on there? And Jackson, you, you, you might agree on this. Uh, probably with a lot of this, when you increase someone's energy intake, they're probably in turn increasing their energy expenditure. Meat levels rise and they're able to get more active. And maybe that's part of what we see versus a true increase in metabolic rate or thyroid hormone or leptin, uh, yeah. maybe for someone coming out of a, out of a diet break period, like what you would see post-show. Yeah. I think and post-show a massive one, like, especially if like they're, 
they're putting away that food post-show, like the thermic effect of that food itself um, can have a substantial like body temperature effect. Um, and that like feeling of like, damn, I'm so hot. Everything's like fired up and revving. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's, it's a lot of it is due to just processing so much more food um, than you were, than you were used to having. Um, but you make, you make really good points. Um, I think like, Absolutely. If the, if the prep or the weight loss phase is more enjoyable, you are able to push yourself um, a little bit harder and, and that could potentially have like indirect effects into these better results right. that we're seeing some of these strategies. And secondly, like if stress is higher um, and like hunger is really high, um, like not everyone, like it would be nice to say everyone just can go in robot mode and they, they can just like sort of navigate past these sensations and just suffer and, and sort of still not break plan plan. But the reality is like people aren't that strong, like, or, and that yeah. disciplined. And, and if stress does push to their max and hunger does push to their max, um, you're opening yourself for like issues with adherence and falling off plan. And, and, and if the if uh, what we do think is, and the research supports is that refeeds and diet breaks could number one be reducing that stress um, and number one be reducing that hunger maybe just some of the benefits that we're seeing when you when people use these things and report such great results maybe it's because they think back to like the other preps where they weren't using these things yeah. stress and hunger just got too hard and that caused them to like fuck it i'm having a big mac tonight and that yeah. sets them back and, and became sort of reaching the end goal even more difficult and then it's sort of because they're behind the eight ball, they're doing more cardio and, and, and things are just a bit of a wash. So um, I think, yeah, it, I think these refeeds and, and diet breaks, a lot of people seem to think they have direct physiological effects. But like you said, I think, I think what's actually happening is a little bit more indirect effects. We just haven't sort of realized it yet. I, I agree too. And, and how do you, how can you even show that in a research study? Like that's not what we do. We try to control every very possible to tease out those things and be able to say, say, yes, it is metabolism. No, it's not. And then if we have that information, maybe we can look through what we're currently doing in the trench and say, Oh, what's actually going on. It's like, Oh, well, my athletes are stressed less and I can actually um, push them harder in, in their energy expenditure, maybe increase steps and cardio. Then they just have better fat loss rates along, along that prep. Um, yep. kind of getting into the actual application and trenches, like how has this changed how, how you use it for your athletes? And I, I want to focus really on like, cause a lot of people are going to be competitors that do listen to this and, and for your application, what are the signs like, okay, X, Y, and Z are happening to this client. These are my like check marks to say time to implement diet break refeed or whatever you are using now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like obviously my, my use of these things has changed um, substantially over even like the last 18 months. Um, like as a coach a year and a half ago, um, if I had a, if I had a competitor, if I had any client that was looking to lose weight, there's a 95% chance that, that, that they've got refeeds or diet breaks somewhere in their program. Um, and now I would say um, like it would be 50% like of, of people that would get them and, and people that don't get them. Um, I still do think that they have, if we took um, refeeds specifically, I think the, the one day refeed still has a lot of psychological merit um, just as a way to sort of um, frame their adherence during the week. Like, cause they know they've got something coming to look forward to um, and allow for like a, a slightly less restricted meal or a social meal that they can have with like friends and family. So they're not feeling completely isolated because I think that isolation does tie in with the stress quite high like not not everyone can just go in a dark hole and just suffer for 15 yeah. weeks and they come out of it fine people like are humans they like social interaction and, and things like that so I, I like it for that 
um, abilities. Or it might even just be a meal on like a Sunday or a Sunday morning um, where they can go have with their girlfriend or their friends or something like that. And then they're, they're, they're rejuvenated, batteries are charged and they're ready to crack on um, for the next week. So I use it quite for, for that purpose. Um, but if it's turning into a binge, like you give them a little and it turns into a lot, I'll just pull, I'll, I'll pull them out. If, that, if it's happened two weeks in a row, um, they'll come straight out. And I, I know some people um, just do way better by just keeping on the sort of consistent intake um, throughout the phase. Um, because it, for, for a lot of people, I, I would say almost 50% of people, maybe, maybe 40%, um, that one meal can just sort of set off a spiral um, and sort of the, the burger that they were supposed to have turns into sort of at a fries and a Sunday, and then they get home and then they raid the pantry. And then it's like, you've done a lot of more harm than, than sort of the benefits. And there's, there's not even any psychological benefit there. Cause they feel like a piece of shit the, the day yeah. after. Um, and for diet breaks, um, things that I will look for is like, if they got heaps of time, um, then I, I do like to use them because um, like I said, I think the hunger management benefits are substantial. Um, and I think um, using them is just going to make overall the weight loss phase um, sort of more enjoyable and less monotonous. Like if, if you have a client that comes to you and like they want to do a 12 week cut or something like that, um, they get to week three um, and it's like, fuck, this is kind of not super enjoyable. And they're like, shit, I got nine week, more weeks of this ahead of me. But if you just sort of break it up into three week stints with like a, with a diet break thrown in after that, mentally that becomes a whole lot more manageable from the client's perspective because they've only got sort of got to grind for 21 days at a time before they start getting some relief. And so I think that that just effect in itself um, can be quite powerful when we compare it to someone who's got no diet breaks, they're suffering sort of halfway and like, I can't, I can't do six more weeks of this. And, and that, that causes slip ups, adherence, falling off the plan. Cause they, they, it can be very easy to fall off the plan <laughs> when sort of stress is high and enjoyment of the program um, is really, really low. Um, but if I've got a client and like, they're like, okay, I want to do a show in 12 weeks. And like, I do the math and I could just work, like work out that we'll be just there. If, if everything goes to plan, like, obviously um, I'm not going to be, not going to be using, um, refeeds uh are not going to be using diet breaks for them i might just give them like i said like a, a, a one day refeed or something like that to, to at least sort of achieve some of the, those adherent psychological benefits um something that i do disagree with now and like i thought it was completely um viable a year and a half ago was like when someone goes flat and like you see that they're a bit flat and they're checking like, oh, you need a refeed. Like, like we're going to give you a double day refeed. Like I'm not a massive fan of like the ad lib um, refeeds because now I just don't think they're doing anything for like lean mass preservation. And I think like the flatness is just going to be part and parcel of, of getting in great shape. And the best fat loss is going to happen um, when you are flat. If you've got heaps of glycogen, um, your body's just not going to like preferentially take from heaps of your fat stores when it's got this more abundant, more efficient fuel source that, that it can use. Um, so I'm not a massive fan of like, oh, you're flat, like time for a refeed. Uh, I'll just tend to have them on more of like a pre-planned scale where they they can look forward to it. So we get those adherence um, benefits because they, they know they've only got five or four X days until um, refeed. Um, and it just, yeah, it gives them something to look forward to. No, I think that's, that's a great takeaway for, for people to utilize. And it, it really is come down to the person, like you said. So mm -hmm. it's not, I, I think you're going into a, 
a cookie cutter approach if you're like this is that refades are for everyone and that's what we all use it's like mm-hmm. we're, we're you know um it should be based on, on what does that individual need as far as their timeline goes so a proper assessment for if they even have time for it or if mm-hmm. they do can they psychologically handle that and what it would be the right approach and i think there's a variety of approaches that you could use whether that is the one day approach or maybe maybe it is a the whole week long application and keeping them more adherent but weigh in that some people might not be, you know, adherent within that. And I think you brought up a good point too about going flat because I've, I've been coached like that too. Like, Hey, you're flat. We're going to refeed you. And you're like, okay, I need to get full for some reason. Um, and you're <laughs> like, okay, you know, is this to look, it's like, all right, this is how we, we want to look for stage. And may, you know, maybe, maybe there, there's some application like, Hey, you want to try to try to test run your peak week. Um, I, it's, it's very, I think that's different though. Like that, that's for a different purpose. Yeah. 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 If you, if you understand the purpose of why you're, you're applying it, but like my 2015 prep, I, I had to cut like 50 pounds off and, uh, I had one meal that was like three sushi rolls the entire prep. And the most of the prep, I was fucking flat, like so flat, but I was the most conditioned out of the whole show that I've ever been. And did I lose muscle? It's like, man, it's, it's, for an enhanced bodybuilder, it's highly unlikely. I was just fat, you know, and people were like, no, I, I really lost it on that prep. Like, no, dude, you had less muscle than you thought and you had more fat than you thought. Um, mm-hmm. I hear that shit all the time. My legs are flattened out. It's like, no, you just don't have legs to begin with. You gotta <laughs> go in the off season and build some legs first. Um, but no, I think you, you brought up a lot of great points in, in, in the application of that. And I don't know if you ever noticed this, and this is one thing I've noticed within myself, is following when I used to do these really large refeeds. So I would be dieting like on 250 grams of carbs and I'd have like a, a 600 gram carb day. The next day I felt terrible, not digestive wise, but like this, this psychological feel, like I could feel myself getting like quivery, achy, like coming back down. Like you notice the high glycogen change back to coming depleted again versus like you're just kind of always in this sucky flat state and you're like, this is just my life. Then you come back to life and you like slowly see death coming back. You're like, this is terrible. I don't know what that is. Or if you, yeah. if you know what I'm talking about within that, but it made refeeds like fuck refeeds. I, I don't just give me a little food. I don't need like a thousand grams of carbs. Yeah. I think the body just lacks being in sort of close range to homeostasis. And like the more aggressive your refeed is, the further away from homeostasis um, that's going to sort of take you. And then that transition back can, can be quite uncomfortable. Um, even sort of psychologically uncomfortable for, for a lot of people, uh, but, de- but physiologically as well. I just think the, the body's not completely accustomed to, to hand, handling that volume of food or, or carbohydrate at one time. And it's sort of like this, this new stimulus and, and, you give it there for a second and it's t- taken out and the body's like, what the fuck is, is, is going on sort of thing. And that's, that's a lot of that sort of uncomfortable sensation, I think. Um, but yeah, just guessing. Yeah. And not to mention like, that was a big thing that got me away from it was like the GI distress of mm-hmm. going from eating like small food volumes to these really large food volumes and being off for a few days. And that's if you're still maybe even using a lot of the same food sources, but a lot of people aren't they're, they're yeah. going with food sources that they're not having been used all prep. Or they're like, I hear people say like, oh, I'm going to have a go have my refeed and, and they eat like a burger. And it's like, I think you just had a cheat meal. So, but, <laughs> but then their GI is like way off the next day. And it, yeah. it takes them a few days to get regulated again. 
Um, so, I mean, there, there's, there's a, a gastric rationale to 100%. these refeeds too. And, and some people are very, very sensitive to them. Now I, I see the application of testing these things out for a peak week, right? Um, because if we do raise food volumes, which we're probably likely going to do for someone peaking for a show, you need to know how these respond accordingly with gastric distress um, or even how someone, the amount that might need. Do you, do you, how do you um, implement that? Do you have some type of practice peak you do if able, or do you just kind of go off, off the fly that, that Yeah. Week? So I, I, I like, like if you've got them ready in time, I basically like to, to do a, um, a diet break, like into the show essentially. Um, so I did a lot of measurement of in the, the diet break study, like looking at things immediately before and immediately after the final diet break of the study that happened at week 16. Mm -hmm. um, so that was like a complete increase in carbohydrates to maintenance level and protein and fat stayed the same for seven days straight. And what I saw overall, so this is the average difference. There was a 750 gram increase in lean mass with no increase in fat mass. In fact, there was a slight decrease in fat mass. Now, I don't know how many other peak week protocols are delivering like those sort of like the results, those numbers. Like if someone can, can, can put on damn near close to two kilo, two pounds of lean mass in a week leading up to your show with absolutely no change in fat mass. Like I'd say that's a pretty damn good result. Um, so I am a fan of sort of getting, getting the guys ready um, in time before the show and actually sort of like cruising into the show, like not having to deplete because you're already, if you've done things right, you should already be depleted. You shouldn't have to like deplete further. Um, like you're already depleted and then run that sort of diet break into the show. And like, I've been seeing like really, really good results with that. Um, and I think even if you want to take it a step further, like get them ready three, three weeks out before the show. And you can also have like, almost have a trial run, you know what I mean? And, and, yeah. and far out like the, the, the difference between having someone who's sort of ready three weeks out and gets to sort of eat up into the show, like the stress is super down. They're so relaxed. They, they, they basically just go out and show they're ready to have fun compared to the person who's like depleted up to peak week. And then for whatever reason, they need to deplete and have zero carbs for the first three days of peak week and then start like doing these aggressive protocols at the end of the week and they're stressed and all these variables are changing and their look is changing incredibly like day to day. And sometimes you miss it and sometimes you get better, sometimes you get worse. It's just, yeah, I'm, I'm, a map, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of sort of using these, trialing these diet breaks sort of right at the end, close to, close to show day with the assumption that, that you've got them ready with enough time. Yeah, and then like, well, Jackson, what if I'm not ready? It's like, well, is, is carb depleting and then refeeding going to fix you, you that you still have body fat on you? No, you're yeah. probably going to end up like flat and fat on stage or spilled exactly. over in fat on stage. And both mm -hmm. of those just means look, you look softer. So likely the, the less extreme approach is, is probably your best. And the longer I've done this, the, the less I do in, in these peak week settings. And the best result that I've had has been mm -hmm. usually like second shows because I've, I've died and flat down. I barely make it to, to stage. Then I have this post-show period where I'm just kind of eating at maintenance and training and have great quality training and stress is low. And all of a sudden I'm like, I have this little bit fuller look and I'm way harder. And yeah. that's what I think you see going into these, like if you have the ability to feed someone in ma at least maintenance and just, just mm -hmm. do that into your show. And yeah. I, you probably don't manipulate water or, or sodium, I would imagine, no. right? No. No. If you're already lean. Yeah, exactly. 
if, if you're if you're if you are truly stage ready, there's really not that many areas where where you're going to hold, hold be holding water. Like you hold a lot of water in like those at, in the adiposts and around the adiposts. So if the fat's gone, you're going to look hard. You're going to look hard. And, and sort of if you are fat, like no amount of diuretics or water manipulation is going to save you. Yeah, if you're if you're trying to pull, you know, intracellular, it, it's going to come from both both body places. So you're going exactly. to have to get that sacrifice. Yep. That, that's what I've seen too. Luke, sorry. I, I, a, lot of times I, a lot of the times I do see like um, when you're running these diet breaks sort of right at the end of a, end of a weight loss phase, um, it almost looks like there is like a, this drawing of water sort of into the, into the cell anyway. I think that's just because you've increased your carbohydrate intake. The glycogen needs to go somewhere. I, the carbohydrates need to go into the glycogen within the muscle. And it's, it seems to be drawing some of the, the water sort of like into the muscle. And I think a lot of people say like, oh, like I'm getting leaner um, while I'm doing this. I don't think they actually are. I think it's just some of this extracellular water is being bound to the, the carbohydrates that are now going into to be stored as glycogen. And that's what's giving you that, that harder, leaner look. Yeah, I guess there's a, a differentiation too between, because some people might potentially could have higher cortisol or inflammation and in tissues just from the training stress, right? And then at the same time, going into peak week, you're tapering training, but you're also increasing food for people and you see that hardness come about. Mm-hmm. Is that just a decrease in inflammation or is that draw, like carbohydrates drawing more fluids in? Um, maybe it's a little bit of both. That yeah, I think it be a bit of both, yeah. And so you're, you can't say like, hey, carbohydrates are raising insulin and lowering cortisol because you measure cortisol, I would imagine, throughout your... Yeah, we- we we saw we saw nothing really going on with cortisol that was worth worth talking about. Yeah, we don't know. You know, someone's out there running this like POW style prep where they're like you know tortured on the stairmaster for three hours and like yeah. maybe that individual they do have the high cortisol and <laughs> and just tapering training or increasing food or both that is going to have this effect on that. But that is that like outlier that probably was in your study because. Your ARB committee probably would have, you know, been upset with you for for torturing these people too much. Yeah, yeah. I would love to like put my participants through like a true <laughs> contest prep and like actually like really grind them. But that would be that would be tough to get through ethics. Even even like with ethics for this study, they're like like zero point seven percent body weight losses per week. Like, is that safe? I'm like, yeah, yes, it's safe. Like, <laughs> people are doing much worse than this. <laughs> So I think one of the big things, like we've seen like your opinion shift across the, the timeline that you've mentioned about the effects of this and how that's pulled down. But one thing that hasn't been mentioned and is probably going to be more of an anecdotal based assumption is the activity side of the equation. when you're, when you're doing these things, like there's, there's a lot of guys on here who track steps. And one of the things that's mentioned when we bring food up is, is an increase in meat. But if someone's hitting, you know, a step goal every day and we're not seeing that fluctuate because they are a tracker in that sense, you know, we're not seeing that benefit of the need. Are you trying to manipulate activity within these refeeds? Do you see a benefit of pulling back on activity as part of the refeed process? And then where does your thoughts lie with that, with possibly even measuring that as a part of research moving forward? Yeah. So as a coach, I don't change um, any of my like activity prescription um, during refeeds and diet breaks, but I do think it might just change without needing a prescription. Um, so I did try to measure it in the diet break study because what I thought was that like maybe some of these like weight loss benefits that we're seeing in like 
the intermittent trials with like the overweight people and the, and the rodents. Maybe it's not like a, like a direct effect again. Maybe it's just like they feel a bit better when they have a bit more food and they move around a bit more. And that's, that's what's potentially sort of encouraging the, the weight and the fat loss. So I did try to measure it for this study, but I just didn't have enough accelerometers. So I, I, I used them on only nine participants, like nine was as many as I could get. Um, and I didn't see any significant differences between like the guys in the diet break group and the guys not in the diet break group or not using diet breaks. Um, but I'm also like not super confident, like, cause my, my sample size is so small with that. Um, what I'd really like to see is like to even just have it accelerate accelerometers on the diet break group only, but just monitor like the incidental activity before, during, and after the diet break to see how that changes. Because I do have a hypothesis that sort of when they do have these diet breaks, maybe they, maybe they don't log it as like cardio in a sense, but like maybe they're just move, moving around a little bit more like active in general, a little bit more like unconscious fidgeting and, and things like that. So um, that's something that, that in the future, definitely uh, I'd, I'd like to um, look into. But as a coach, yeah, my, my activity prescription doesn't change um, during refeeds and diet breaks. Yeah, we've I've had a few clients and, and I kind of weigh it out that, you know, and we talked about this on another podcast, like you have that client that they have a good amount of food, but for some reason their training is like beating them, over, beating them to death, but, or their cardio or whatever. I mean, first thing that comes to mind is like, you should probably change your modality that you're doing with their exercise if they're getting that beat up for it. Yeah. Um, but, but, but maybe in that instance, if they need to like drop fatigue or, and you know, have this ease of prep occur, we pull back on cardio and maybe not bring food up as much versus maybe this other person that they're, they're starving on prep. Um, and their, their cardio is very manageable for them. Like, Hey, I don't care. I'll do cardio. Um, maybe that's the person that you have more of this increase in food on versus even messing with, um, the exercise expenditure side. I don't know if you've run into any situations that stand out in your mind that have been like that. Um, I, I think that kind of gets into the, the, the programming. There's probably a programming issue maybe possibly to begin with. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you have, I, have any thoughts I, on that? I can't say, I can't say it's an issue that I, that I've run into um, regularly or off the top of my mind. Um, but yeah, if they're eating a decent amount and, and, and like they're still trashed um, after their, their training, then something's probably out of place with the training as opposed to sort of them needing more refeeds or diet breaks or, or, or something like that. Um, the, one, one thing I will say that I, that I have trialed um, occasionally is like the, the caloric addition that I would normally add during a refood or diet break, I've just split it between like half being like extra food, half being reduced like cardio load. If they have been sort of yeah. like, complaining about like the the cardio getting to them and things like that um but it's been a handful of times um sometimes sometimes like reduction in in cardio is preferable to people as opposed to like giving them an extra sort of 75 grams of carbs or, or something like that so um yeah probably a case by case um thing come down to to, to the client um but i'd say i'd say for for the majority of the time um with the guys that they're like are suffering that they'll, they'll take the food most of the time as opposed to sort of reduction in activity. I kind of like, I mean, I think for certain clients, they just need to be, they like to be just told what to do. Right. Um, yeah. But other ones, I think 
you know, building in that autonomy that they have some, you know, they have some of their own like direction and responsibility and where they're headed, uh, give, gives them a little bit of, of control feeling. And I think that can uh, move a client up to like a higher, higher level, um, you know, than, than just being a robot. But yeah. it depends on the client. I, I think that's, that's definitely to say. And uh, having that guidance of like, you're not really probably listening to your client if you're, if you're like, just do this. It's like, well, did you ask them any, any questions? Like, are they starting? Are they feeling completely worn out, exhausted? Um, then you're probably lacking a, lot, a little bit of that assessment aspect on, on that end. Um, yeah, I agree. Well, Jackson, we're coming up here on the hour. And so I want to just kind of give you the opportunity to um, add anything that you want to see done, like uh, that you want people to take away from this as far as application for refeeds and diet breaks um, and, and give, some, give some final words for us. Yeah, I just, I just, I guess, want people to not take everything on like immediate face value. Um, and just because you've heard something be said on, on social media or you saw an infographic, you don't need to necessarily need to take it as sort of complete truth. Um, we still need to question things. Um, and I, I, I was guilty of sort of being in the, like the pro refeed and diet break camp for a long time and, and potentially promoting benefits that hadn't yet been supported by research. Um, but, like it was a learning process for me too. Um, and, and over the next few months, like as this new research does come out, like don't, don't bitch and moan because the findings don't fit with your preconceptions about these refeeds and diet breaks. And certainly don't bitch and moan just because it might mean that sort of refeeds and diet breaks don't have all the benefits that you hope they did. Um, like if you have a true, like critical scientific mind, you should adapt uh, as, as more information comes out. So, um, I just, yeah, I just encourage people to, to critique what, what they hear um, and, and not, not, not just blindly accept everything, even if it's on PubMed, like even if it's coming from someone that you, you think has a solid reputation, still, still question things. Um, and I just, I, I hope that, that as the diet break stuff does come out over the next few months, which is basically being research that's, that's taken um, close to two years of my life and, and thousands of hours of work, um, that, um, yeah, take time to, to read the full study if you can. Um, don't just read the, the final three words of the abstract and, and, and use that to, to um, frame your future approaches because there's a lot of really good information. Um, there's a lot of nuance there um, and there's a lot, a lot of take-homes um, from those papers. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to getting them out there and to sort of progress the discussion in this realm of, of intermittent dieting because it's an exciting discussion. It's a new area of research and it's probably the most exciting area of research that's in the sort of physique nutrition space um, at the moment. Um, and there are a lot of um, research teams are sort of grabbing onto this stuff. And I think we're going to see over the next few months some really cool research, really new papers and, and basically a whole lot of learning that's just going to make us better athletes, better coaches. Yeah. Beautifully said. And I think there, probably a lot of us have been on that where we can jump on to being in a, taking up an identity within a, yeah. a, a practice. Like I am carb cycling guy. And now we <laughs> find out carb cycling is not valid. You're like, Oh shit, but I'm carb cycling guy. Who am I now? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it makes you, yeah, yeah. And it can make you, and you see this all the time, like in nutrition, like I am carnivore 
I am vegan. It's like, well, let's fucking go to battle then. Um, <laughs> and you know, it, it's, it's, you don't have, don't take these things up by identity because a lot of nutrition, it, a lot of it operates in this gray world where there's a little truce on both sides and you have to just be open and flexible to adapt as we learn more. And so I, I think that that is a, a great takeaway for a lot of coaches that we, we don't know it all. And we probably mm. never will know it all. And also mm. we'll forget a lot that we know. <laughs> so yeah. um, just stay, stay humble and keep your mind open. And with getting into social media and who you're taking information away from, it also on, on Instagram, it's, it's, it's not a valid point to just tag at Jackson Pios as your argument, right? <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, with that being said, I want people to be able to find you on social media and, and see all this great information you're putting out. So please um, plug yourself on, on where we can learn more about your research or just follow along with the information you're putting out. Yeah, so thank you for that, John. Um, the best place to get me is on Instagram at Jackson Pios, P-E-O-S. Um, basically anything that's going on with my life, whether it's what cartoons I'm watching, what research I'm doing, what foods I'm eating, that will be, that, that'll be done through, through Instagram. Um, and if you want to get to know me a little bit more, um, I do have a YouTube channel, um, just Jackson Pios, where I discuss um, anything, training, nutrition, anime, um, things that are of interest to me, um, and a lot of sort of research topics um, in, the, in the training and fitness space um, that I'm interested in too. And um, basically education is, is a massive motivator for me. I get a, I get a massive um, fulfillment from that. So um, having a sort of little community on there where we can sort of share ideas, we can all lift each other up, learn more, make ourselves better athletes and coaches. Um, I, I love to do that. So if you want to be a part of it, feel free to, to, to grab me there. Awesome. Well, well, Jackson, thank you so much again for, for coming on and sharing your wealth of knowledge. And we really look forward to your research coming out and the opportunities to talk again. So it's been a pleasure guys. Thank, thank you. Yes. This is J3 university podcast and we will talk to you next time.